Having considered the images of Jesus in the book of Revelation, these faces of Jesus, we now come to consider the transformation that Jesus brings about in those who are faithful witnesses to his gospel. In this regard, I'm reminded of a lovely passage from the writings of St. John of the Cross that speaks to us about what happens when Jesus looks at us and transforms us by his presence, he transforms us by his grace. St. John of the Cross writes, Scattering a thousand graces, he passed through these groves in haste, and looking upon them as he went, left them by his glance alone, clothed with beauty. The Gospels record the miracles of our Lord and show us clearly how it is that when Jesus passes by, what is broken is made whole. Those who were ill are healed. The powers of darkness scatter in haste. When Jesus passes by, the faded images of a creation estranged from the face of God are restored. They are made beautiful once more. In and through his words, his works, his miracles, a beauty comes to shine forth that is a beauty not of this world. But most importantly in the context of our series of reflections on the faces of Jesus in the book of Revelation, as our Lord passes by, St. John wants to show us how a single glance alone is sufficient to leave us transformed. We have been contemplating the mystery of the faces of Jesus from the perspective of our own efforts in looking at him, in contemplating his face. What St. John of the Cross helps us to meditate upon is the mystery of the transformation that comes about when our Lord looks back at us, so to speak, when he in turn looks at us and so leaves us clothed in beauty. Biblical tradition holds up for us examples of different people who have been so transformed by God's grace that like the image of our Lord himself on Mount Tabor, they too, even if only momentarily, come to shine with the light of God's Holy Spirit. When we reflect on some of these figures from the biblical world, we in many ways are left only with questions. What are we to understand concerning Enoch in the book of Genesis, chapter 5, 24, who is said to walk with God? Elijah is spoken of as having been taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot. Moses on Mount Sinai in chapter 34 of the book of Exodus is described as being transformed. We read as follows, Exodus 34, 35. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. In the New Testament, St. Paul, in the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, makes reference to his own experience of having seen the third heaven. In the book of Revelation, St. John sees before himself an opened door into heaven and passes through it. And as I indicated in an earlier talk, certainly St. John's intention is to bring the church on earth along with him on this tour of heaven. St. John certainly wants to bring us not only to look upon God's glory and to look upon his splendor, but to reflect as well on these images of God's approaching judgment. Certainly Pope John Paul II 
pointed us in the right direction when he said that holiness consists precisely in this, that it is no longer the Christian who lives, but Christ who lives in us. Here, John Paul is referring to St. Paul's letter to the Galatians 2.20. Here, said John Paul the Great, is an exhilarating goal, accompanied by a promise, which is no less consoling. As Jesus says in the fourth gospel, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than I will they do, because I am going to the Father. Here referring to the gospel of John, chapter 14, 12. So St. John is inviting us to follow our Lord, to follow him on the road to holiness, but to be transformed in the process. So the gospels and the gospels call us to imitate Christ. But beyond any external imitation of Christ, Jesus promises his grace and his glory to those who follow, not only in this world, but in the next. In the story world of the book of Revelation, we find a Jesus who invites us to be faithful. He calls us to follow him. He calls the church on earth to be brave in witnessing to the values of the gospel. Certainly, he calls us to share in the mystery of his own suffering. Ultimately, our Lord invites us to focus upon him, to look at him, to keep our eyes fixed upon him, while at the same time he truly looks back at us, his faithful followers, and in the process leaves us transformed, again, not only in this life, but in the next. St. John shows us how the church comes somehow to share mysteriously in the beauty and in the radiance of God. At the end of the book of Revelation, this beauty is elaborated, if you will, in the descriptions of the New Jerusalem. Here, certainly for St. John, the New Jerusalem is a place. Here is the holy city of God. At the same time, we shouldn't forget that the New Jerusalem is a very powerful symbol for God's holy people. It is an important symbol of the church. The promises that Jesus makes in Revelation are quite elaborate, especially in chapters 2 and 3 where he promises to those who are victorious a whole series of transformations. These signs of grace all speak to us about God's gracious power at work in the heart of the church. These changes for those who prove faithful speak to us about divine life and the glory to which God calls us both in this life and in the next. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we find a whole series of symbols through which St. John wants to elaborate the changes that await those who not only hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, but are faithful in their witness to the gospel. So let's take a moment and look at some of these symbols individually. We see in Revelation 2.7 the mention of the tree of life. And we read from the text, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. First mentioned in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, the sacred writer refers to it in the context of the story of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does Jesus seem to be promising here in the book of Revelation? In the first instance, entry into paradise, and a share in the blessed life of paradise. So we see that Jesus promises a persecuted church that if they prove victorious, the sorrows and the disorders of the present time will certainly give way to the blessedness 
of everlasting life. In Jewish reflection, there are two traditions of the tree of life. One that appears in apocalyptic literature describes for us the idea of future access to the tree of life in heaven. In the first instance, then, the tree of life is a powerful symbol of the future blessed life of heaven. But there is also a second tradition that wants to reflect upon the symbol as a way of speaking about the community of the elect. We see this in Proverbs chapter 3.18, Proverbs 11.30, and elsewhere. We see it in Isaiah 60.21. Here we see this then, this image of the tree, the tree of life, that speaks to us of the church on earth and of God's grace at work and active in our midst. In Revelation 2.10, we see this image of the crown of life, and we read, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. John speaks here of this crown, which is a kind of wreath of leaves, such as those which were given to the victors in athletic competitions in the ancient world, or perhaps those who had achieved some kind of military victory. This image of being crowned by God as a reward for righteousness, crowned by God as a reward for faithfulness, is certainly common in the biblical literature. We should see, though, John is reflecting as well, this image of being crowned by God as a reward for righteousness or faithfulness, or perhaps also martyrdom, is a common one in the biblical literature. Jesus is said to be crowned with glory and honor for his suffering and death in the letter to the Hebrews 2.9. In an early Christian writing, the martyrdom of St. Polycarp, Polycarp is said to have been wreathed with the wreath of immortality, or crowned with the wreath of immortality. St. Paul speaks of that imperishable wreath, as in 1 Corinthians 9.25, or the crown of righteousness, we see in 2 Timothy 4.8. The first letter of Peter 5.4 speaks of an unfading crown of glory. All of this imagery is closely associated with martyrdom, as indicated by the further promise in Revelation 2.11 that the victor will be spared the second death, namely, will be spared suffering the loss of their soul for having rejected God's offer of salvation in this life. It is precisely this association that St. Cyprian develops in his address to martyrs and confessors in the early church. St. Cyprian develops this kind of Christ mysticism that we see in Galatians 2.20, again, no longer I but Christ in me. Again, here is not only an imitation of Christ, but really and truly a participation in the life of Christ, a participation in the mystery of Christ's own presence in our hearts, who not only encourages us from without, but also struggles within our hearts, who struggles to help us to bring about this victory. Ultimately, it is Christ, then, who both crowns and is crowned within us, according to St. Cyprian. And I'll read from his letter to Martyrs and Confessors from Epistle 11. If the battle shall call you out, engage bravely, fight with constancy. Christ, who is not such a one that he only looks upon his servants, but he himself also struggles within us, himself is engaged. He himself also in the struggles of our conflict 
not only crowns, but is crowned. So we see that the faithful witness, the victor, comes to share in the mystery of Christ's own life and death, and so is said to be transformed or transfigured in the process. We could say, in the context of all of our discussions now, the faithful victor comes to reflect something of the the grace and the glory of the face of the one being contemplated. In Revelation 2.17, we see these references to the hidden manna and to the white stone. And we read from the text, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written upon the stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. What is this hidden manna? Exodus 16.15 refers to the manna, this bread from heaven. We find elsewhere these references in the Old and New Testament to this food of angels, if you will. But what would be this hidden manna? Is it hidden in the sense that it is reserved only for those who are worthy to attain to the life of the world to come? Certainly those who prove victorious will be rewarded with eternal life in which intimate fellowship with God will be enjoyed. But we reflect now on this white stone with the name written on it. This stone, the Greek term for it, can be translated also pebble. The scholars point out to the use of the stone or the pebble in the casting of votes in the ancient world, particularly with regard to a judicial process, so that the white stone or the white pebble was used to cast an affirmative vote, while the black stone would have been used to cast a negative vote. Does John have in mind here this white stone associated with the positive outcome of some kind of judgment? So here we could say the white pebble would be, in a sense, given to the martyr as a sign of a favorable vote, enabling them now to enter into the life of the world to come. What is this new name referred to? Similarly, this new name raises questions for it. It is somewhat uncertain. Is this the name of God? Is the author thinking of the name of Jesus? Certainly St. Paul in Philippians 2.9 says that the name of Jesus is the name above every other name. Or should we think here of the name of the conquering Christian? In any event, St. John seems to be reflecting on the mystery of the name of Jesus, which we see in different parts of the New Testament, had great power over the forces of darkness. We're dealing here then with the notion of a stone, perhaps an amulet, perhaps a gem, with God's name or Christ's name upon it, which therefore had great protective power. When we reflect now on this image of the morning star here in Revelation 2.26, He who conquers and keeps my works until the end, I will give him power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received power from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. It is the Son of Man in the book of Revelation who has power over the nations. We see in Revelation 19, verse 11, or 19, verse 15. John probably is thinking there of Psalm 2.9. Moreover, it is Christ who is said to be the morning star. We see in Revelation 22.16. Again, what does St. John have in mind here, if not that the faithful witness, the true witness, the one who accepts the challenge to enter into the struggle to bring about the kingdom of God, 
will come somehow to reflect the reality of Christ's own power, his own glory. One commentator observes, the gift of the morning star must refer to the fact that the exalted Christ shares somehow his messianic status with the believer who conquers. The faithful, victorious witness is also a light-bearer. See in the second letter of Peter, 119. Again, John seems to be reflecting here on a kind of spirituality that wants to envision the Christian as somehow reflecting the attributes of Christ himself, or somehow sharing in his divine nature. We see this also in Revelation 3.5. He who conquers will be clad in white garments, and goes on to say, I will not blot out their name in the book of life. I will confess their name before my Father and before the angels. Revelation 3.12 Whoever conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write my name upon him, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and I will write my own new name. Here these white garments certainly symbolize a whole range of positive meanings centering on the concept, certainly in the first instance, in the Old Testament of ritual and moral purity. Angels, heavenly messengers, wear white garments. We see in Mark 16.5, the Gospel of John 20.12, Acts 1.10, also in the book of Revelation 4.4, 19.14, the book of Daniel 7.9, Priests in the ancient world wore white. Here, Exodus 28.4, Leviticus 16.4. That there are faithful who are found worthy to walk with Christ, Revelation 3.4, seems to be here an allusion to Genesis 5.22, also Genesis 6.9, where both Enoch and Noah are said to have walked with God. That is to say, that they enjoyed uh, this relationship with God that they had an unmediated relationship with God. These qualities of brightness, of purity, Revelation 19.8, here the fine, bright linen, which is the deeds of the saints, all of these are associated with the new Jerusalem into which nothing unclean may enter, Revelation 21.27. The concluding visions of the book evoke similar images of the eternal city, of the messianic banquet, of the divine marriage, the symbolism figures significantly in early Christian efforts to explain the sacraments, particularly the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist. When we reflect on this image of the pillar in the temple of God, here John seems to want to say that the victor will be part of the foundations of the new reality of the kingdom of God, this heavenly city being prepared for those who are faithful. So the faithful will somehow enter into the circle of the living creatures, of the elders, of these angels that are described in chapters 4 and following. And it will be their joy to be part of the heavenly praises of God in all eternity. In one early Christian writing, we find reference to the lot of the righteous as a place of great delight in the temple of the Lord. We have in verse 12 of chapter 3 these references to writing upon the conqueror, the name of God, the name of the city of God, this new Jerusalem. And Jesus speaks of writing my own new name. Here, these different names spoken of certainly speak to us 
of the transformation of the Christian who will have inscribed upon them mysteriously the very names of God, of the city of God, this new Jerusalem, of the name of Christ, all of these speaking to us about salvation. God will, in a sense, take ownership of the victorious. Certainly, St. John seems to be thinking of the book of Exodus, chapter 28, verses 36 to 38, which speaks of the instructions for writing this inscription, Holy to the Lord, on a gold plate to be placed upon the front of Aaron's high priestly headdress that is on his forehead. See also in Isaiah 43.7, it speaks of everyone who is called by my name. So we see that this association between the name of God, the name of the New Jerusalem, the name of Christ, all speak to us about this mysterious transformation, about the way in which God will take ownership of those who prove to be victorious. In Revelation 3.20, we see this image of enthronement. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me upon my throne, as I myself have conquered, and sit with my Father upon his throne. Revelation 20.4 describes the martyred faithful who come back to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Here the promise to be enthroned with Christ, as Christ is enthroned with the Father, develops a kind of transformational symbolism that John wants to use to develop uh, this mystery of sharing in the victory and in the power and in the glory of Christ. So we pray that God may give us these graces, that God may give us the grace to allow ourselves to be built into the spiritual temple, this holy priesthood, that his one and only Holy Spirit may shine through us into the darkness and in the confusion of the present time. A few years back, along with a number of other people from the seminary, I went to Montreal for the Third International Congress on Vocations, and about 1,200 people, mostly from North America, were in attendance. And it was very inspiring to be there with uh, so many different priests and deacons and sisters, to be there along with bishops from different parts of the world, and all, all gathered together to discuss and to reflect and to pray for vocations to the priesthood and to religious life. One speaker was reflecting a bit on the crisis facing the church in the present time with regard to vocations and pointed out that the Japanese word for crisis is made of two images, one meaning danger, the other meaning opportunity. So as we should all be praying that out of the difficulties of the present time, that God will raise up for us a new culture of vocations based upon Jesus' vision of vocation in the Beatitudes. And the speaker observed that where the Beatitudes are being lived, God is sure to raise up examples of holiness. God is sure to raise up for us examples of generosity, of total commitment, men and women who are joyful, powerful in the Spirit. For God is love. God always loves. Therefore, God always calls new laborers into the harvest to complete his own work on earth. We shouldn't forget, then, that not only danger, but opportunities are always present. We see this in the oldest biblical stories that deal with crisis and deal with change on a mass scale. Once again, we're called forth to do great things, 
to live bearing witness to the transfigured face of Christ and to be transformed in the process, to be transformed by this transfigured Christ and to live with him a transfigured existence. So we're called to be heroic in living out our call to holiness. Crisis, opportunity, difficulty, the call to heroism, all are important ideas in the biblical narrative. Whether we reflect on the story of the flood in the book of Genesis, the story of the Exodus, whether we reflect on the call of Jesus in the Gospels to leave everything behind and to follow him, whether we reflect on the call to suffering and patient endurance in the book of Revelation, what is important for us is to see how the moment of crisis has the power to overwhelm us. It has the power to overcome us. But at the same time, it has the power to carry us forward. At the same time, the moment of difficulty or the moment of crisis has the potential to carry us forward if we don't back away. One psychologist some years ago, reflecting on the story of the flood, said the following, that the flood comes precisely in the moment of crisis. To the majority, it spells destruction, but to the hero, rebirth. Which it shall be depends upon whether the spark of divine wisdom within a person enables them to orient themselves positively to the experience of the oncoming waters, accepting them as a suprapersonal reality capable of bringing renewal. Such an orientation is symbolized by the ark or the chest or the boat. In this way, then, the hero, the one who finds in the crisis the opportunity to move forward, may ride out the deluge and emerge to a new heaven and a new earth. The church's invitation then to contemplate the face of Christ, to head out into deep waters, to be heralds of the dawn, to pray for a new Pentecost, all of these figure in our discussions here. So we need to ask ourselves, how can we live out the mystery of the cross and resurrection in such a way as to be really and truly signs of hope in a difficult time, signs of hope in a dangerous time? I was talking with one of my former professors at the seminary recently, and we were sharing some thoughts concerning the difficulties of doing priestly formation in the present time. He suggested that it is as though we were trying to sow the seeds of the new evangelization in the midst of a storm, a hurricane, if you will. It is as though we were on the roof of a house, with the wind blowing and the water rising. At times it may seem to be an impossible task in the social context in which we live. And yet the church calls us to hold fast, to hold fast at all times, in all circumstances, to Christ's own presence within the church. The church calls us to hold fast to this bark of Peter, to seek his face, and never to cease to seek his face, in the words of John Paul II in Novo Millennio Inunte, Article 16. Here, then, is this Jesus who journeys with us in the boat, who is with us right in the center of the storms of time. It's precisely in the process of realizing that we cannot do everything for ourselves when we stand back, perhaps as St. Peter, when we call out in desperation that the sleeping Jesus suddenly emerges to meet the needs of the present moment, whatever they may be. Somehow amid the changes, the crises, the confusion, the difficulties of this passing world, it is important for us to really believe and to appreciate how it is that the new Jerusalem is already present 
It is already in the process of being brought together while we are journeying together in the boat. Again, in the midst of all the crises, the plagues, the floods, the earthquakes of history, whether collective or personal, God is with us. Jesus is with us, calling us forth and bringing about the miracle of his transformation in our midst. And it has been thus since the resurrection, when Christ defeated the powers of darkness that rage against his kingdom. The present time calls us to great holiness, to Christian heroism. So it is that I tell my seminarians that I'm certainly praying for vocations. I'm praying for an increase in vocations, but perhaps more than ever, I admit that I've been praying for the vocation. The history of the church shows us that the significant reforms have tended to come through individuals. Moreover, if the church is true to form, she will bring forth for us that genius who will articulate the vision of the gospel that will help us to move out of the crisis of the present moment. Once again, John Paul II reminds us that holy men and women have always been the source and origin of renewal in the most difficult circumstances throughout the church's history. Today we have a tremendous need of saints for whom we must assiduously implore God. The Lord calls forth right here and now not just vocations to the priesthood and religious life, but calls forth a commitment to the kind of Christian heroism and witness and sanctity that have been the marks of the saints and the blesseds throughout the ages. It is an age of crisis, yes, but also a time of great opportunity. Once again, we turn to the words of John Paul II, because we find in them the encouragement and confidence which we all need to face the tasks that are before us. He writes, A new century, a new millennium are opening up in the light of Christ, but not everyone can see this light. Ours is the wonderful and demanding task of becoming its reflection. This is a daunting task if we consider our human weakness, which so often renders us opaque and full of shadows. But it is a task which we can accomplish if we turn to the light of Christ and open ourselves to the grace which makes us a new creation. 